First, we're going to go to Washington, D.C., where we find Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, New York Times investigative reporter, David Farenthold. First of all, the Republican primary. I was stunned. Six votes already for Nikki Haley. Do you think this is... Is this indicative of the lead? Yeah, I know. Is this indicative of uh, what's going to unfold today? Is it going to be a shocker? I don't think so. If you recall back in 2016, John Kasich won. So the the six votes we already have are from that town of Dixville Notch, where it votes at midnight for sort of maximum TV exposure. Um, They voted three to two for John Kasich in 2016, and he definitely did not win the New Hampshire primary. Did not. So the the latest polls of showing Trump with like a 10 or 11 point lead over Nikki Haley. I, you know, I think maybe it's a little, she's going to do a little better than that. The, the electorate is unpredictable because there's a lot of independents and Democrats who are going to get into the Republican primary this year. But I still think Trump's going to win. I just well, don't think, yeah. you know, that that difference is too much to make up. If she loses as badly as the polls are predicting, does she go ahead and concede today or does she uh, try to keep, well, she wants to, she wants to at least go through South Carolina, right? I mean, I don't know. I don't think she'll concede today, but, you know, South Carolina is her home state, but the polls are showing her losing there. So. I think if she doesn't win today or make it really close, if it's surprising, if it's only a two or three point loss, you know, then maybe she could carry on. But there's nowhere where she could say, well, you know, if I just wait until X, you know, I'll have a good shot. New Hampshire is her shot, basically. And if she doesn't make it there, I'm not sure she's going to stay in the race very much longer. And do you think she uh, turns around and endorses Trump after all the things she said? I mean, I know there have been uh, sharper turnarounds than that, but I mean, she seemed to be at least towards the end getting a, a little more. Uh, anti-Trump than she had been. You're know, talking about his mental lapses and things like that. I yeah. do think she will. Just, I mean, I feel like I've had so many, you know, so many times where you're like, well, maybe this Republican will stand up to Trump. But, you know, it's like one in a hundred that does. And people like her or Tim Scott, the, the former presidential candidate that just endorsed Trump. But, you know, they are young and they want a career in the Republican Party and they're not willing to put whatever they think about Trump in private. They're not willing mm-hmm. to sort of you know, sacrifice their career to that. So despite all that stuff about how he's also an old man with men, he's go- she's going to come out and say, eh, maybe he's not as mentally lapsed as I said he was. Well, it, maybe it'll prove me wrong, but I just, you know, think about like Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, all these people that run against Trump, get humiliated by him, you know, say all these horrible things about him, and then they decide, well, you know, I'm hedging my bets for 2028 or 2032, and, they, and so they, they turn around and endorse him. Yeah. I, I, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I just have to think that's what Haley's going to do. Now, one thing I heard was going on the Democratic side. Now, officially, there's no Democratic primary in New Hampshire, but um, apparently there's an attempt to push write-in votes for President Biden. What's behind that? Well, you remember the Democrats decided they didn't want to start with New Hampshire and Iowa because they're very white and, you know, they, they don't, they're not representative of the party's base. Right. So they, are, they have said, OK, South Carolina is our first state now. Um, but New Hampshire, it's really important to them to have the first in the state nation primary. So they're still having one. I think they are actually having a primary, um, but Biden's not running in it to show that he doesn't, you know, he's not endorsing that the idea of it. So, um, but yes, to, in order to, to avoid the optics of having Biden lose to some nobody because he's not running, the people have asked Biden to, to have asked voters in New Hampshire to write in Joe Biden's name. I, you know, I, I still think he'll probably win, but it'll, it's, it's weird. It's weird to even play in that because it means. Like he's there's still some measurement of his popularity. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, it's just um, that that whole attempt to try and make South Carolina first seems to have been a bust. Are they going to stick with that or uh, go back to the, the way it was? Well, it's hard in a in a in, you know with an incumbent. It's hard to like you know make any state the real first primary in a, in a race where really nobody's running against Biden. It's just it's nobody's. So you know, I think we'll know next time. You know, next time I think it'll be really hard for people to pass up Iowa, and New Hampshire. 
you know, both because the voters are very engaged there. New Hampshire is great because everything is such a small state, easy to get to all those places. I think it'll be hard for people to pass that up. Um, but I guess we'll see. We won't really know till the next cycle. Okay. Now, in terms of the the strategy that uh, that uh, the Democrats, uh, various Democrats, are trying to get Biden to use, one of the things I've been uh, hearing is that the Democrats don't feel he is going hard enough on abortion because, as a Catholic, he feels uncomfortable doing that. Uh, what do you think his strategy is going to be on that issue? I do think he's going to hit it pretty hard. In fact, um, Kamala Harris is now starting what she calls the Reproductive Freedom Tour, which she's going around. She's I think in Wisconsin or Michigan, visiting all these places to talk about the threat of abortion, you know, being outlawed in those places. Mm-hmm. So I do think they're going to hit it pretty hard on their campaign. I think they they think, uh, you know, the, the abortion and democracy are the two issues that are best for them. And maybe the economy will join those two. But for, for now, abortion and, the, and, and democracy are the two things they have to hit the hardest. And is there a real threat on that? I mean, are is there going to be a Republican effort to preempt states like Washington, which have made abortion a right, and try to impose a restriction at the federal level? Well, people in Congress have talked about it. I mean, I, I think the, the question is, would Trump push that? I, I, just what I've seen from Trump, I don't see him pushing abortion, you know, that kind of really strict abortion law. You know, to try to preempt state laws on a, on a national level. He's talked about taking credit for getting rid of Roe Ro versus Wade, which he certainly did. But I don't see him. I think he understands that's an electoral loser. and It's not something that animates him personally. Mm-hmm. And the other issue that, I, that comes up uh, again and again, certainly among uh, Biden supporters, is the Trump as dictator thing. So what what is the status of that line of, uh, of of Trump's campaign where he talked about being dictator for a day, but now we are, I'm hearing interviews with voters saying, uh, yeah, we, we like the dictator idea. I mean, how serious, <laughs> how serious is that? Well, it's pretty serious. I mean, I, I don't know that I would say a dictator, but you know, the, the, the things that his people around him have talked about, you know, allowing the president to choose who the Justice Department prosecutes, using the Justice Department to prosecute the president's enemies, using the military uh, against demonstrators, you know, the, using the military against immigrants. There's lots of things that we take for granted in this country about the way that politics doesn't bleed over into the rule of law, into the, the administration of justice, or doesn't bleed over into the military. You know, that there's non-political, you know, that those aren't tools of, of political power the way they are in some other countries. Trump wants to get rid of that. He wants to use those as tools of political power. These people have been very explicit about wanting to use the military on protesters and about prosecuting Trump's enemies. So, you know, I, I think you can't, you know, they have said that. They've very, very, we've written some really good stories about that. They've made that very clear. That that's what they want this government to be like. I think we have to take that seriously. David Farenthold from the New York Times. David, thank you. Let's talk about taxes. Tax season right around the corner. So we brought in our tax whisperer, Kenneth Williams of CLA, who updates us on some of the changes at the IRS later this morning. But he also wants to spread the word about a state program, which instead of taxing you, actually hands out money to you if you meet the income qualifications. The catch is it doesn't just come to you like those tuna checks from the AG's office. You have to apply. It's the Washington State Worker, Working Families Tax Credit, and it works similar to the federal earned income tax credit. Now, the federal earned in- income tax credit is for people who have full-time jobs, but it's considered to be basically a, a pretty low standard of living. And so if you can prove that you were working at one of these jobs, they basically uh, add to your income, correct? Yeah, it's a way of supplementing people, rewarding people who are 
in low-income categories, but are working. So they're not just relying on the dole, right. <laughs> which is a kind of term that you often hear. But they, they're working. They may have um, several children. It's, it's based on both your income level and number of dependents. And it's not available if you're just living off investment income. But if you have earned income... Uh, under these thresholds, then the Washington state is basically saying, hey, let's give you a little help. We'll give you a tax credit or a refund uh, anywhere from $50 up to $1,255 if you meet the criteria, just to take a little bit of the bite out of uh, the cost of living. Mm-hmm. And that would be in addition to the federal available, the available federal subsidy for low-income people, right? That's correct. In fact, one of the requirements for this credit is that you are eligible for the federal earned income tax credit or would be mm-hmm. um, if you meet certain criteria but aren't, aren't claiming that credit. And uh, so they, they, you file a separate return with the state for this. But you have to know that this program exists and you have to seek out the paperwork. So this is not like the IRS, which is going to send you the paperwork, you know, send you the the uh, the notice that you you owe taxes and invite you to fill it out you have to seek this out from the state that's exactly right because washington state of course they don't have the the records that the federal government has in terms of your w2s because nothing gets reported to the state on that so they expect you to file this return now they've made it relatively easy if you go if you just use your search engine engine for washington working families tax credit it'll take you to their website and they can walk you through you can actually file this return online i believe that the filing opens february 1st so people can go online and they can see if they're eligible for this credit and this is again separate from the federal return that you're filing so you go to the website working families credit dot wa dot gov and that has all the qualifications and the directions on how to apply hey, oh, choke points i5 express oh, lanes edition the lanes have been open since 1965 but we still keep getting questions about them from people who don't really understand why they work the way they do so here's chris and first a little history lesson the express lanes were built in the 1960s when traffic modeling showed that i5 had much more demand coming to and from north of seattle they were built to help those commuters have a faster and more reliable route in and out of downtown without having to worry about merging traffic it was not built as a bypass of downtown seattle which some Times people ask me about. The most common question I get about the express lanes is why they aren't automated. Why are there several Washington Department of Transportation's employees needed at the gates when the lanes switch from northbound to southbound or in reverse? WashDOT's Michael Forbus is the engineering manager of the Traffic Management Center in Shoreline. He says they were automated when they first opened. Due to some safety concerns, the department stopped op- uh, the automated operation of the uh, of the express lanes, and that happened really early on in the in the late '60s. What was the safety concern? Drivers trying to beat the closing gates. What was finally determined is they really needed an on-site operator, somebody that was right at the button with the gate that could determine if that vehicle was going to run or not. Those washed-out workers are there to make sure that nobody runs the gates, and they are also there to put the safety netting in by hand. That safety netting is actually in that silver box right next to the gates. Forvis says the system is operated by remote control and is technically automated, but the employees are there to ensure safety. The second most common question is why the lanes aren't operated 24 hours a day. 
because that's how they started. The lanes were open to all hours until the 1990s. That's when people living near the Ship Canal Bridge upped their noise complaints. Because of that configuration and the geometry of the bridge, the noise from the express lanes bounces off the upper deck and bounces into the neighborhoods, basically the East Lake neighborhoods. And so ever since I-5 was built, the uh, Eastlake communities complained about the noise. Washdot looked for ways to dampen that noise, but ultimately decided to close the lanes at night. What they asked us to do was to close the express lanes at night. So we did traffic analysis and looked whether we really needed to use the express lanes at night, and the answer to that was no. If the traffic analysis were to change, Forbes says they could reconsider the hours. It's the overnight hours that leads me to the next question, which is about all the graffiti. Yes. Some listeners believe that leaving those lanes dark and quiet gives taggers way too much access to their canvas. Washdod's James Poling believes taggers would still be active even if the express lanes were open 24-7. Your graffitis are out there tagging uh, inches away from cars zooming by. Uh, that would be a very similar situation if the express lanes were open at night as well, where uh, the graffitis are just taking risk, where it, it really doesn't matter at this point if there's traffic or not. Washdot spends hundreds of thousands of dollars each year to repaint and remove the graffiti, but the taggers come right back. Polling also says that in the tunnel sections of the express lanes, which have tiles, they require a special paint. It's really a challenge, especially in express lanes, uh, to have, because of that specialized paint, to have the graffiti removed in, in, a, in a timely manner. And Forvis says washed-out workers at the TMC in Shoreline report every tagger they see, and believe me, they see them. If you know, if we see somebody out there, and we do see people paint, uh, it's an immediate call to state patrol. Now, Dave, I did give Forbus your solution, mm -hmm. which is to put fake ivy over all of the freeway walls as a deterrent. I really don't think he was expecting that. That's one I have not heard of. Um, heard of a lot of uh, uh, graffiti-proof paint. <laughs> yeah, I haven't heard of fake ivy. But he has now. Finally. So now that's a, it's in the ear of the person who needs to know. Forver says Washdot is continually looking at the lanes and how they can be improved. A big change is actually coming up to them later this year when that reversible lane goes into them between 520. So that's going to be the first real significant change we've had there in a little bit. That's going to change the operations a little bit. In fact, they are going to automate the safety net that oh. goes between those when they switch from east to westbound uh, at this point uh, and the way that works is that the net goes up in the air mm -hmm. kind of like a banner right and then it just remotely goes back down and sets back into place when they need to switch from one direction to the next so that's coming up later this spring hmm. you know if the if they're the taggers are out there every single night why can't they you know get one of those really quiet electric cars and just sort of sneak up on them well they could I mean, it's something they, they, they could idea. do, but the state patrol would have to uh, have to make that happen. Why not? Seems like easy pickings. Yeah. Time for your daily dose of kindness. It is brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. After learning that a first grade class went on an imaginary trip to Mexico, thanks to their creative teacher, Southwest Airlines invited the kids to their Dallas headquarters to experience a real plane. Here's CBS's Steve Hartman with the story. Oh my story. You may walk to recess. At the Trinity Leadership School near Dallas, Sonia White's first graders were flying high. Come all the way back and walk. Because, as we first reported a few months ago, they had just taken an amazing field trip. Where are you going? Mexico. To Mexico, I love your outfit. It was my first time on a plane. We went inside a cloud. I saw the ocean. Is that your first time seeing the ocean? Mm-hmm. 
At this point, you've got to be wondering, how could a school afford this? What kind of teacher does it take to fly a class of first graders to Mexico for a day? A very clever one. So just to be clear, you did not go to Mexico. We did not. You did not get on a plane. We did not. You never left the class. We did not. <laughs> what you're about to see is a testament to the power of imagination and the magic teachers have to harness it. Okay, let's find out. Who's After Sonia's students right. told her their one wish was to fly on a plane, she went full throttle on the pretend. Um, boarding pass and your passport, please. Created travel documents for each child and then boarded them on their flight to Mexico. Okay, guys, we are now at 13,000 feet. You may take out a snack. We had a little turbulence. Well, it did not scare me, but my friend Lorenzo had a rough landing. Really? What happened to him? He was like... The buy-in really was remarkable. One of my students saw somebody that night and they said, what are you doing here? I thought you were in Mexico. And he said, yeah, we were. We got back at three. <laughs> and that's when I was like, they really think we went to Mexico. After we first told that story, Southwest Airlines invited the class to its Dallas headquarters to step inside a real plane. Welcome aboard. Experience tray tables and safety cards and begin to wonder where in the world their imaginations might take them next. Did this fuel your desire for more travel? Yes. Do you know North Korea? Yeah, sure. Probably I do not want to go to next. I guess even pretend flights come with travel warnings. Yes. Steve Hartman, on the road, near Dallas. You forget <laughs> that not everybody gets to fly on a plane. That's a big deal. I didn't fly a plane. My first flight was when I was 17, I think. Yeah. Right now, June, my four-year-old, she's obsessed with taking a train. She yeah. wants to know what it is. So we're going to take a train here soon. Now from the Generous Show, here's G. Scott who has seen Killers of the Flower Moon, which is up for um, an Oscar, and uh, you were moved by it. Absolutely moved. Now, let me just say this. Going into it, um, you know, I, I'm, I wanted to see the movie because Leonardo DiCaprio, I think he's one of the best actors out there, and Robert De Niro's in the movie. I don't care what it's about. I'm watching, right? I'm going to watch this movie and turn that thing on and watching who she plays the character of Molly on there. Guys, she was incredible. I mean, and I didn't I didn't know that she was up for anything. I'm just watching. I'm like, oh my goodness, who is she? I start looking her up. See, she's, you know, she's born in Montana and then found out that she's actually with the high school here, I believe. I'm like, man, whoever she is, and this is the reason why I'm saying that. If you see an actor or an actress stand out amongst Leonardo DiCaprio and <laughs> Robert De Niro, you're wondering to yourself, yeah. who is this? Well, did you hear her Golden Globes speech? I didn't. Um, to me, it was did not. It was awesome because uh -huh. I learned something in her speech. And she said that, you know, back in the day when they would make movies with Native Americans, they would have Native Americans uh, speak English and then play that backwards to imitate a Native American accent. And so when she gave her speech, she spoke her, I believe, 
believe, native Blackfoot language Blackfoot, mm-hmm. to have that language heard and represented because of what, what an awful th- instead of just letting yeah. actors back in the day speak their language, they would just reverse an English script to make mm-hmm. it sound like gibberish. Right. That is so offensive. So to see this happen today, to me, it's like, OK, we're still going in the right direction. We're still doing it. So I, I think that um, when we are thinking about Hollywood in the movies that are to come, there is so much that we can, will be able to see. Instead of the part five, seven, eight, ten of Fast and Furious, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like instead of just, yeah. you know, remaking, 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 oh, we're going to be bringing this back. This movie was made 30 something years ago and we're going to do a remake of this. No, we have the opportunity now to start seeing other stories yeah. that can be told from and, and, and can be a lens for people to see something different, to see the diversity in this country. And if you get a chance to see this movie, uh, Flower Over the Moon, it is just it's a very good movie. But I think what stands out, what was the are the actors in the movie, actors and actresses in the movie might be a little bit. I mean, it's a true story. But I would say that it's probably better than the actual story. But even though it's a true story, well, it's you know Hollywood. I mean? Hollywood. Yeah. Had you had you heard of that incident before? The attempt to rob this uh, nation of its wealth. I never heard the story there. And oh, by the way, it happened during around the same time as the Tulsa. Tulsa yeah. You know what I mean? Like, no, these stories. Like, these are the stories that were not taught in schools, right? That probably should be taught. We learn about things that happen across the water, across the ocean and other uh, countries, but we don't know some of these stories. How can we not know that? Or unless people think that it is a bad thing to learn about this history. Well, clearly, I mean, the the more I, uh, longer I live, the more I realize how much was basically suppressed when I was going to school. Mm-hmm. Not mentioned at all. No, I mean, I was, uh, when did I watch this movie? I think I watched this movie a uh, week and a half ago, two mm-hmm. weeks ago. Literally the first time I'd yeah. ever heard a lot of, of that history story. of people of color in this in this nation have has been buried and suppressed. You know, it was it was just a couple of years ago that we were all going ha, Juneteenth. Never <laughs> learned about that in school. And now it's a it's a national holiday. Mm-hmm. So that's where, you know, as, as hard as it is sometimes to feel hopeful. These are indications that we are heading in the right direction. Yeah. And, and some people learn this way, too. Some mm-hmm. people learn about history through through Hollywood made movie, media. right through yep. media. It's like, oh, man, I never knew that story. Now that I've seen this movie, let me go ahead and research and learn up about more about the facts of that story. And I tell you, that story right there had me looking up a bunch of facts. Absolutely. So. Good morning, y'all. G. Scott at 9 o'clock with Ursula. It is 848. And that, that is Mickey time with Mickey Gomez. And also joining us is Chief Millennial Correspondent. Well, he could go either way. He could slop into Generation Z if necessary. I'm right on the edge. You're on the cusp. David mm-hmm. Burbank. And the uh-huh. significance is that that uh, he's going to try this uh, cell phone detox thing. You're going to you do that? it? I am. Yeah. You're going to go, go a you whole have to month do is- a phone? Mm-hmm. Well, I well, mean, here. No. So, Mickey, you can explain mm-hmm. what this yeah. challenge is because so, there's a chance that I could. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, Siggy's Yogurt Company is doing this digital detox program, which became a contest. And you submit an essay. You explain to the company why you need a digital detox and how getting off your device will somehow make your life. Hot right. Mm. Um, you have to be 18 or older, a U.S. citizen, and if you know the company decides, hey. We're going to let you try. 
They're going to choose 10 lucky winners. They're going to be they're going to notify you via email. You get the 10K, a lockbox for your smartphone, a flip phone so you can still make phone calls because you have to be able to make phone calls. Yeah. A prepaid SIM card for one month. And enough yogurt for three months. Why? Why a yogurt, yogurt involved, company yeah. doing that? I, uh, why? I mean, for publicity, I mean, publicity obviously. obviously. Yeah, like, clearly, because yes. we're talking about what, them on the What does yeah, yogurt have that. to do with being off your? Is there Not like a, a personal vendetta? Thing. Not a dog owner has. Okay. I will say, I I do enjoy this yogurt. It's Icelandic style yogurt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so okay. it, even right. more than the ten thousand dollars, I'd right. almost do it just and for the three months. And this by no means is a paid endorsement. No way. But listen, recent data shows that the average person spends about three hours and fifteen minutes on their phone every day and my family and I are trying to break away from that we were at the dinner table we try and have dinner three times a week because Gigi's got a lot of basketball but at least three times a week we try to have dinner at the table put the smartphones away but on Sunday we had the conversation about who spends the most time on their cell phones and everyone said me and I said oh no 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 so we all broke out the cell phones at our dinner at the dinner table which they're not allowed and we were looking Hour and fifteen minutes, baby. Hmm. That's not a lot. That is not a lot. I was very proud of myself. I just looked at my average. It's up to three hours and one minute, but it's down thirty three percent from last week. That's good. Well, one in five smart smartphone users spends on average about four point five hours a day on their cell phone. So I think it's pretty cool that this company has decided to come up with this contest to incentivize people getting off their doggone cell phones because it's. It, it's to the point of annoyance now. Mm-hmm. I, I go to restaurants and I try and be more, you know, cognizant, more more available to my spouse and say, hey, let's just put the cell phones away. Let's talk. Let's have a. And, and in the beginning, it was very awkward. We would just sit there quietly. <laughs> and now we're starting to get used. We're like, yeah, let's have a conversation. Let's talk about things. But I'm observing all the people around me and everybody's like this. Yeah. Everybody's on their phones. Everybody's got the hands down, phone up. And I'm like, wow. So why do you want to do this, David? Uh, I mean, $10,000 sounds great. Yeah. Uh, also, <laughs> so I find I'm... I have my my wife and I both have a real real problem with I think they call it dead scrolling yeah. where you yes. essentially we'll we'll put something on the TV we'll be excited to watch a new episode of something or a new movie we'll put it on the TV within five minutes we're both on our phone yeah not even looking at interesting things not reading important news stories or anything scrolling on TikTok scrolling on Reels not really registering what we're even seeing and then we'll realize fifteen minutes in. Oh wait! Something just happened in the on the TV that we're not even that noticing. To me too. And uh, it's just it it feels like really unhealthy behavior. You actually we, rewind the program to see what it was every once in a while, but sometimes we're just like, ah, it's it's a loss. <laughs> Have now. you ever gone back and then picked up your phone again and missed yes. the same? Fa- yes. yes, that's <laughs> yes. why we no longer yes. will rewind it because yeah, it's a pattern and it, it's it's like a compulsion. I have to leave of. my phone in a whole separate room when I'm watching mm-hmm. a movie yeah. because that's it, a good it is idea. too easy. Because then what I'll do is I'll start watching and then I'll be like, oh who's Who's that actress? Oh, who's mm-hmm. the voice in that? Da, 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 da. And then I start researching the movie instead of just enjoying it. Well, tomorrow I'm going to speak with this uh, with a therapist. Oh, yeah. Who it's about the nightly nudge. Mm-hmm. And he actually explains what it is you just did, what it is that you and your wife just do when you're watching movies. Mm-hmm. And it is actually there's actually a term. It's called dopamine hijacking. Oh. And so we're going to talk about that and the nightly nudge. I need to protect tomorrow. all the dopamine I can get. Absolutely. So I don't like this. So all there right, is Mickey. a reason why it is you do what you do. So what do you guys do when you're in a movie theater? 
Oh, uh, that's easier. How, how that's why that? I love the movie theater so yeah. much. Is yeah. it's immersive. You do, you're not looking at your and phone. And there's social you pressure do, too. Not yeah, social etiquette. Very Turn your good phone social off, pressure. Put it away. Yeah. So what you need is for a person to be in your house taking the phone out of your hand. <laughs> no, that just causes marital issues. <laughs> get off your phone. Yeah, yeah we don't need gotta... our spouses to control us, but we do need better tools to get us off, us off our phones. We need right? that digital detox for sure. Yeah. yeah. All right. So David, when are you filling out the forms for the contest? After work. I was going to do it during work, but, yes. you know, I have to pay attention to the I'm excited for, the show. for you. This is, this is I hope you get exciting. it. How I can we win? support I know. you, David? I, that would, wouldn't it be great content for the show? If you and your wife else. should do it together. <laughs> yeah, true, true. We'll split right. the $10,000. $10,000 and all the yogurt you can digest. <laughs> to upgrade their phones. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mickey. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.